One of the country's most famous companies is expanding in Oregon, and one city is carrying the water, legally speaking. That town sued to prevent the public from knowing key details about the company's plans. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source Health Plans, for supporting the show. Up next, Mike Rogaway, business and technology reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. We talked about Google's plans along the Columbia River and why the Dalles is suing the Oregonian and Oregon Live. We discussed data centers in general and what they mean to our economy, what other companies are doing, and what information they share. And on the second half of the show, we talked about Intel's bold new plans and why resistance and skepticism are so strong. Here's our conversation. Mike Rogaway, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, glad to be here, Andrew. So, Mike, the phrase water wars is one that I think conjures a, a lot of visuals for listeners, but I'm not sure that the top of the list would be the city of the Dalles suing the Oregonian. How did we get to this point? So uh, it's it's all about data centers and, um, you know, they, they're like, there's nobody in them except for computers, you know, rows. If you go into one, they're all dark and there's rows and rows of blinking lights. It looks like something out of the Terminator or something like that. <laughs> um, but they're like a small city in terms of their appetites for resources. You know, they use each one uses as much electricity as a, a small town and, you know, guzzles a huge amount of water to keep all those computers cool. Uh, and so Google, which built its first corporate data center, first big corporate data center anywhere in the Dalles uh, 15 years ago, built two more cents and wants to build another two. But the Dalles doesn't have enough water for that um, under the under its its current water system. So the city and the Dalles have come to get come to an agreement where Google will spend twenty eight million dollars of its own money to upgrade water capacity and hand over some of the water rights associated with its property to the city. The city says that'll increase its water capacity from about 10 million gallons a day to 15 million gallons a day, 50, uh, 50% increase. And that's enough water to quench Google's thirst for these two new data centers. The issue, though, is the city won't say how much of that additional water Google will use, and it won't even say how much water Google uses now. Mm which is a little unusual or actually very unusual. You know, Intel, another big water co- uh, water consumer, uh, is we learn their water use by asking the city of Hillsborough for public records, which the city of Hillsborough provides. Apple uses a ton of water for its data center in Prineville. We know how much because we asked Prineville for its, Apple's water use. And Prineville tells us. Yeah. But the Dow says that Google's water use is actually a trade secret and that they're not allowed to tell us under Oregon law. So we objected and Oregon public records law is a little convoluted, but we essentially appeal that to the county uh, district attorney. Uh, And the county district attorney said it is in fact a public record under Oregon law, uh, Google's water use. And so you have to tell the Oregonian, you know what, how much water Google uses. Um, It's a record because Google gets its water from the city. The city objected and under state law, the way they appeal that process is to sue us. And so they sued the Oregonian and me uh, for requesting that information. And so that'll get hashed out in court. Uh, the reporter uh, reporters uh, committee for the freedom of the press 
is representing us and providing our, our covering, you know, on, on their own dime. Mm-hmm. So the Oregonian and me aren't having to pay any money toward this. Uh, depending on how the case comes out, theoretically, if the Dows were to prevail, we could owe some money for its legal fees. And likewise, if we prevail, the Dows could be responsible for covering the legal fees associated with our case. So it's a little bit of a convoluted process. The Dows is voting on Monday, November 8th on whether or not to approve this deal. Uh, It certainly appears that they will. I think pretty much every city council member has lined up behind the water deal. However, this case comes out, the public won't have access to Google's water use, even if the city ultimately loses uh, in time for that vote. It'll be weeks, months, maybe a year before the the court case is resolved. So why would the city of the Dalles want to protect Google here? Do you have any sense? Uh, I think there's a few possibilities. One, they may feel that there's a legal obligation to do so under their uh, arrangement. They have signed three non-disclosure agreements with Google. None of the non-disclosure agreements mention water and actually seem to specifically exempt um, information that's in the city's possession through the normal course of business. But the city may interpret those differently or may interpret other aspects of Oregon's trade secret law differently and feel that it is obliged to do so. It's also possible that they have some side arrangement uh, with Google that that they feel obliges them to do this. Uh, I'm not aware of any such arrangement, but it's a possibility. And the city of the Dalles and and Google um, get their water, is it from the Columbia River? Uh, No, it isn't. Uh, Well... The city's water isn't. Uh, Columbia River uh, water is used to irrigate the agricultural areas around the Dalles, but it comes primarily from an aquifer under the city. Okay. And that aquifer was in steep decline in the 1950s. The state declared it a, a critical uh, water area. At the time, you know, the water from the aquifer was being used. You know, if you're familiar with the Dalles, and and maybe some of your listeners aren't. You know, it's right on the edge between mm-hmm. the wet, soggy side of Oregon and the dry eastern side. You can literally see the hillsides change at, at the Dells. Right. That's. It, I mean, it's it's quite dramatic. If you if you climb up uh, Mount Adams and you look out uh, across the Columbia, it's like a line where you see where it goes from. You know, the wet, the wet, soggy northwest to dry eastern Oregon. It's it's quite quite apparent. So. The agricultural uh, operations around the Dalles needed a ton of water from the aquifer. In addition, there was an aluminum smelter, a huge aluminum smelter there that also required a ton of water. So the aquifer was in some jeopardy in the 1950s. So they set up an irrigation district that does draw water from the Columbia uh, to provide water for the the farms around Mm -hmm. there. And then the smelter shut down in the 80s and beginning in the 50s, you know, the aquifer stabilized and then beginning in the 80s, it started to be replenished. The water deal that Google and the Dallas have struck, um, their idea is to use surface water rights that the city has and that Google has that would, that would transfer to the city to pump water down into the aquifer during the wet weather months and then pull it up during the dry summer months. And the state allows this, but it only allows you to take out 90% of what you put in. So in theory, this will 
you know, not only not drain the aquifer, hmm. um, uh, but it will continue uh, to replenish it. Well, that's that's super interesting. And readers of the Oregonian might remember our former colleague uh, Kelly House's investigative series back from uh, I want to say like 2014, 2015 about draining Oregon and and the the effect of climate change and irrigation on on these aquifers. And here we are, kind of at a uh, this is an interesting location in a number of respects. It's right on that border, and you've got a one of the world's most iconic companies um, pumping water into the ground. Well, I mean, this is exactly what's concerning. You know, Kelly's series, uh, the Draining Oregon series, has come up a number of times in people among people I've I've spoken to. You know, if everything goes according to plan, you know, this is a neat solution. There there is concern among environmentalists, farmers, and rural residents that there could be direct or indirect consequences that are unforeseen or that some aspect of global warming might put pressure on the city Mm -hmm. uh, and the city's water supply. The agreement does commit the city to provide water to Google. So it is potentially a, a constraint. But if it works as the city envisions, the way the city puts it is even in a drought condition, it's going to have more water available because it's getting additional water rights from Google than it would otherwise. You know, folks aren't fully persuaded of that, but there isn't an organized opposition to this at this point, just a great deal of concern. So you've been covering the tech world for a long time here in in Oregon and including some significant pieces over the years looking at the data center industry in our state. Can you remind us why do we have so many of these big companies, some of the most you know, for lack of, I hate the word, but iconic, I guess, most famous companies in our world right now, in our country, um, have presences in Oregon, but they don't have, it's not like they're bringing thousands of employees. No, data centers employ dozens or a couple hundred employees, typically, and many of those are security contractors. But there's a couple reasons. Uh, Number one, data centers have to be distributed regionally, because even electrons take time to go from place to place. Mm-hmm. And so you can't offshore data centers to, you know, I'll say that things were really cheap in Australia. You couldn't put a data center serving Portland in Australia. I mean, you could, but it would take a long time to get your Facebook uh, feed loaded. <laughs> the horror. It would feel like a long time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so Every, every place has data centers. They're distributed near every population center. They don't have to be in the population center. They just have to be reasonably close. So if you look around the country or around the world, they're all distributed, you know, uh, there. Or Oregon has a couple things that make it particularly attractive uh, in spite of what's happening or maybe because, you know, the Dalles is emblematic of what's happening. Water is reasonably readily accessible here uh, and electricity is relatively cheap. The big deal in Oregon is tax breaks, uh, though. Uh, yeah. One data center company operating here, um, not not one of the big tech giants, but one that contracts out space in its data centers, said that even if electricity were free in California, it would still be cheaper to locate in Oregon because the tax breaks are so good. And uh, we have we put no cap on how much small communities or any community can uh, exempt from property taxes. So the result is, you know, these big tech companies, it started with Google, but Facebook, Apple, and Amazon all have large data center campuses in Oregon. 
you know, they saved more than 120 million annually among them. Google saved 30 some million last year, and they have saved 240 million uh, in the in the 15 years since they came to Oregon. So these are the world's richest companies getting enormous tax breaks from some of Oregon's smallest, most cash-strapped towns. Yeah, and and you know they're not just doing it from the Prineville's and the Wasco counties of the world, though, right? I mean these these agreements are also in place in the uh, economic engine of the state uh, out in the Silicon forest out in Washington County, these companies are also getting, uh, getting a tax break to have their data centers. Right. Um, you know, Hillsborough had created, so that we have a couple tax plan, uh, tax break programs, enterprise zone and strategic investment program. These were created in the 1980s to encourage industrial development. And and so Hillsboro, for example, has designated a lot of the area in the, the city as an enterprise zone, mm-hmm. which provides confers tax breaks on anyone who goes there. Well, their idea in doing that was, hey, we're going to have new employers and, and productive ta- use of, of those sites. But data centers looked at that and said, wow, that's pretty good. And there's actually, uh, there's a, a trans-Pacific uh, fiber cable that, you know, runs to the Oregon coast say, well, Hillsborough is not that far from there. Mm-hmm. So we can, you know, reach pretty much the whole globe um, from there and we don't have to pay taxes. So a whole bunch of Hillsborough's industrial land has been gobbled up. And after that was happening for a few years, um, the city did put some constraints on it. It's still a pretty good tax deal in in Hillsborough and data centers continue to expand there uh, uh, and occupy a great deal of the city's industrial land. If you're driving on Highway 26, you can yep. look over and see them. You know, they just look like big warehouses. In industrial land that that was once some of the best farmland in in the state, if not that's right, if not a uh, <laughs> the country or that's the world. right. It's not being converted to housing or factories or or even stores. It's being converted to warehouses for computers, essentially. So, how do these data centers affect the local economy, whether it's in Hillsborough or the Dallas? Well, they provide very little economic benefit in a city like Hillsborough because they're exempt from taxes, um, or not entirely, right. but largely exempt, uh, and they don't employ very many people. The story is somewhat different in smaller towns with other economic, in, without other economic engines, and where the land would otherwise definitely be sitting empty. Uh, they, they benefit in a few ways, in spite of their tax breaks or rather because of their tax breaks, they do make some offsetting payments that, you know, amount to a, a few hundred thousand up to a million dollars a year uh, or more, maybe in some cases. And in a small town uh, like the Dows or like Prineville, that's a significant amount of money. Uh, in small communities, even a couple hundred employees uh, can make a, a big difference. The period of construction you're bringing in people, you know, you'll have hundreds of people working to build these shells mm-hmm. um, for the data centers. So that has a, a big economic impact while construction is going on. In Prineville, construction has been going on almost continuously for the past decade as Facebook has steadily expanded there. And as Apple has built uh, two data centers there as well. And that's, I think it's two. that's also coincided with Les Schwab moving its corporate headquarters it, away, right? Yeah, yeah. Les Schwab moved its corporate headquarters to Bend. So it was a really nice, you know, backfill, uh, essentially, to come in there. And there's another very significant way in which they contribute. Because they use tons of electricity, many of these cities uh, charge a a franchise fee on electricity use. You pay a 
a small percentage of your electricity bill to the city. Uh, if you're using as much electricity as the whole rest of the city, that ends up being a pretty substantial boost. Uh, you know, it, it might only be a, a couple million dollars or maybe just a million. Um, but in a small community, that's a significant boots to the, uh, the city's general fund. So it, it does have a very real economic impact. It's just that the financial benefits overwhelmingly in aggregate dollar terms accrue to the big companies. What have you heard from locals in the Dalles, if anything, through your reporting just about about this water deal and about Google's presence there in general? I mean, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting place there. You know, Hood River obviously is... Uh, farther down I-84 I to the west and has kind of built itself into this beer and and kind of recreation yuppie mecca, I guess, for lack of a, a better <laughs> word, in the mountain and whatnot. And the Dalles is, um, is also a really spectacular place um, scenically and has a lot to offer. But I'm, I'm wondering how, what people have to say about this industry and how it, how it affects the town. There's always been sort of a, a level of mistrust uh, around Google you know, uh, when Facebook went into Prineville, for example, they made a big deal out of being as public as possible. And they disclosed water use. Well, I'm not sure about water use, but they disclosed electricity use. Mm -hmm. uh, they were very visible in the community. They set up a lot of grants. Google has done some of that too, but there's, I think because they were so secretive initially, there's sort of been this lingering suspicion. And so I, I think that has persisted. Now it hasn't triggered the degree of scrutiny that, for example, Nestle going into Cascade Locks right. with their attempt to have a, a spring water bottling effort that uh, operation there five or six years ago, that attracted a great deal of, of scrutiny and local opposition and national opposition. And that plant ultimately didn't happen. I would say here that it's more a level of skepticism. There, the, there is a great deal of outrage being expressed in Facebook groups in the Dallas. But there is not the sort of, let's organize and stop this kind of militancy that you saw in Cascade Locks. And it may be that the concerns are more like armchair concerns, more, more a degree of skepticism, rather than this is going to hurt me in the following way. Right. Uh, it's different when the commercial use of a, of a natural resource is to sell the natural resource for consumption versus um, kind of a hard to process way of understanding how it's going to cool computers and, and machines, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, data centers are opaque. Uh, they're hard to understand. You never see them um, except for the buildings uh, because they won't let you in. And so I, I think there's a less awareness of it. And whatever issues, you know, big tech has had over the last several years in terms of public perception, I think Nestle, you know, is a side of a hot button with environmentalists uh, because of its, you know, history around water use. And Google doesn't have that, doesn't produce that same level of suspicion. Okay. That, but as I say, I, I think some of it is, you know, people haven't been able to point to specific issues that they have with this agreement. It's more an opportunity for some to to reflect on the degree to which they feel they've been left out of city decision making uh, over many years. And 
and farmers and, and agricultural groups say they've always felt, even though the, you know, the Dalles is historically an agricultural town, mm-hmm. they felt for many years that they haven't gotten the respect or attention uh, to their needs from the city that they feel would be appropriate. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll talk more with Mike Rogway, business and technology reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Life. So, Mike, we talked a bit about Hillsborough earlier. Uh, obviously, Hillsborough, you can't talk about Hillsborough without talking about Intel. Uh, what's going on with Intel? Can you talk about their new CEO and um, kind of what you know about the guy? Because you've covered the company for a long time. Yes. So uh, to go back just about a year, Intel had a succession of manufacturing failures. They developed each new generation of their chip technology uh, at their research factory, uh, D1X, at the Ronald Acres campus uh, near Hillsborough Stadium. It's just south of, of Highway 26. And um, they, after this succession of failures, there was a, people were beginning to wonder if, well, Intel got essentially passed in the race for the most advanced chip technology. Hmm. People began to wonder if Intel could ever catch up and if their business model was fundamentally flawed. And if they should start outsourcing their most advanced manufacturing from Oregon to um, competitors in in Asia, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, which is called TSMC, mm-hmm. and Samsung. And so their former CEO was actively exploring that idea. Uh, instead, they went in exactly the opposite direction. They hired back... Uh, one of their former top executives, a man named Pat Gelsinger, who had been running the software company VMware. He'd left about 12 or 13 years earlier. Uh, And he came back and said, I'm going to restore the old Intel. We're going to invest in our factories. We're going to invest in our technology. And we're going to get back to where we were. It's not our business model that was flawed, is his argument. It's their execution and their commitment to spending on it. Uh, Pat Gelsinger, he lives in Silicon Valley now, but he lived in Oregon for, uh, I think, at least 20 years Mm. He was the company's first chief technology officer, uh, and he is a geek's geek, and he would say that quite proudly. You know, he is an engineer. He understands the technology. He is conversant in it. Um, Their last CEO, Bob Swan, was a finance executive. And so he's bringing a degree of credibility to this. The issue they're having now is that his plans involve you know, 20 some billion dollars in new capital spending a year. So that means lower profit margins uh, for the foreseeable future to sort of an uncertain outcome. You know, some people say Intel's model is flawed and they'll never catch up. We're just throwing good money after bad. Others say, yeah, Gelsinger's smart. You know, he'll get this back. But in the meantime, you know, we're going to have to endure a few years of of lower profits and our dividends aren't rising and Intel's not going to do stock buybacks anymore. So it's just not as good an investment for the retail investor or the institutional investor right now. So they're saying, you know, telling investors to take their money somewhere else. So Gelsinger, e- even among believers who, who think he'll ultimately turn the company around, uh, Gelsinger's got to endure a, a fairly difficult period. Yeah. And you're talking about $25 billion. I mean, it was, um, you know, you covered the whole D1X uh, Mod 1 and Mod 2 expansions out in Hillsborough and 
that was over a long period of time and one plant, but that was nowhere nowhere close to that figure, right? Of twenty five million. No, that they say that, they, and they're just wrapping up a third expansion there. They say that'll be you know around three billion. Yeah. Uh, so Bill, and the the issue, big part of that is that um, the factories, the the manufacturing that Intel does in Oregon isn't on the scale of what it does in Israel or Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's what happens here is they. They engineer the new chip, the new processor, and then they start beginning to manufacture it. Uh, so the first ones off the line come out of Hillsboro, but then they fly in employees, uh, manufacturing employees from Arizona and Israel and Ireland, and they say they train them on them, and they say this is how we make the this is the recipe for making our new processor, and then they send them back home, and they'll teach the people uh, mm-hmm. at, at the other factories. But those other factories are much larger. And they're designed to really get humming and get those those chips out, you know, in in high volumes, huge volumes, really. And then as, once those other uh, factories, the industry calls them fabs. Once those other fabs are up and running, uh, and and humming, they'll come back. Then Intel goes back to Oregon and says, "Okay, let's get the new processor on the line." And so they'll gradually ramp down production here uh, on what had been the new processor and get started on the the succeeding generation of that. So how did uh, investors uh, react to uh, Gelsinger's plan? Well, you know, people were tepid on it for a long time for the reasons we discussed. This is going to be a long turnaround. But Intel had in in mid-November this investor day scheduled. Uh, And they said, well, on this investor day, we're going to... um, you know, we'll, we'll lay out what this costs and the finances around all this. And um, you'll, you can ask us questions and we'll explain everything clearly. Well, then their CFO quit. And so they said, we can't really do an investor day without a CFO. When they had their quarterly earnings call last month, they said, well, here are the finances as we see them now. And that's when they disclosed how much they're going to spend uh, and what they see their profit margins looking like for the foreseeable future. And investors were not happy. You know, the, the stock lost $26 billion in market value in a single day. Um, you know, investors always knew there was going to be a cost. They just didn't know it was going to be quite so steep and they didn't expect the bill that day. They were thinking it was going to be another month before they heard the news. And so, you know, I, I think right now the investor camp is, is split in three. There's those who say Intel's model is broken and it'll never be back. There are those who say it's coming back but it's going to take too long. It's just not worth the, the cost. Mm-hmm. And then there's a minority who say, you know, if you invest right now, your return is going to be really big down the line. Uh, stocks are, are measured by their um, price to earnings ratio. A typical historical price earnings ratio, I think might be around 14. That might be an average. Intel's is, is right now uh, at nine, which is, is low. But uh, rival chip company, NVIDIA, their price-to-earnings ratio, their P.E. ratio right now is 95. Wow. So everyone's betting on these other chip companies. NVIDIA, which is started by and run still by Jensen Huang, uh, Aloha High graduate and Oregon State graduate, uh, is now worth something like three times the market value of Intel. Uh, and a big part of what makes NVIDIA so valuable is that 
it doesn't own its factories. It doesn't do the lar- low margin, you know, work itself. It just outsources the manufacturing to companies overseas, and it's you know much more efficient, provided you're able to engineer chips that can then be manufactured closely. Intel's thesis has always been: we'll be better off tying our our manufacturing and our engineering together. Um, and the split right now among people watching Intel is whether that's still still the best way to go. Knowing uh, Gelsinger uh, as as you do, having covered him and interviewed him, um, wh- how do you think he's handling all of this? Well, he's Intel had become uh, uh, with their last two CEOs, you know, more even as they were trying to bring more executives in from outside the company, they were becoming in a way more insular and more defensive. It seemed like Gelsinger is very savvy about working the levers of power. You know, he's on 60 Minutes, he's um, at the White House, he's in Brussels at the European Union, you know, holding out his palm and saying, you politicians, you know, you need to help pay for our factories. Because if you don't have chip company, chip manufacturing in your own country, then it's all going to be in a geopolitically unstable area uh, in Asia. And you're going to sort of be hostage to the political winds there. Uh, it's you know concentrated right now in Taiwan and South Korea, mm-hmm. the two uh, chip advanced chip manufacturing, and those are two, you know, politically, you know, problematic geopolitically problematic areas. And so he's very savvy about doing that. You know, he is a geek. He's not a natural speaker, but he's happy to do it <laughs> because he knows it's important. Uh, and he, he's going to get his money, I think, uh, one way or another. And that's going to offset a substantial amount of the spending. But Intel's still going to have to foot most of the bill itself. Well, super interesting stuff, as always. Um, thanks for <laughs> for covering all of it and explaining everything from from the Dallas to, to Washington County and everything in between. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm always glad to have this conversation, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to some of Mike's recent and older stories about the DAOs and data centers in the episode notes. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find the program. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.